Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. With me tonight is podcast familiar and freelance writer, Julian Murdoch. Julian, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're also joined by frequent guest and designer of Civilization Four, Soren Johnson. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Finally, we welcome designer Paul Sedasanti, formerly of Maxis and Wizards of the Coast, to the show. Paul, thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, ever since Soren started interning at 3MA, uh, he and Julian have been dying to talk about board games and their broader relevance, uh, the future of the hobby, and sort of the crossover between video games and board games. Uh, so, so, Julian, Soren, why don't you sort of take us in? Uh, you know, what did, what did you have in mind when you brought this up? So the reason Soren pointed out right before we started recording that like I'm always like chewing the inside of my cheek to not talk about board games on whatever given topic, whether we're talking about air power or balance issues or whatever the topic is, I'm always thinking about all these board game pieces. And um, so first of all, just the idea of having a show where we take those gloves off, I think is useful. But also I think I, I sort of see board games as a place where the mechanics get laid bare in strategy games, where they often get buried in video games. And so I actually find it sort of an interesting playground to talk about these kinds of ideas because the mechanics are always right in front of you because the player's the one who has to take care of them. I mean, Soren, I don't know what you were thinking about when you wanted to talk board games. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think it's interesting that you, you know, people often do feel like they need to apologize for talking about board games when they're on a video game <laughs> podcast, and that's just so strange to me because to me it's all like there's almost no difference between you know a board game and a uh, a video game. You know, it's all it's all part of the same continuum. I think as designers, especially as, as game designers, especially like board games are really appealing because, yeah, you know, you get to the mechanics, you know, immediately. Um, and since, you know, these are all games that, you know, you're playing with people and you're, you're not just, it's not just, uh, you know, like in RTS, you might be playing against some someone you can't see, you can't see what their actions, their reactions are. So you're playing multiplayer, but it's kind of, you know, it's, it's not really a very social experience. So when you're sitting around a table with someone, you get sort of this immediate feedback of like, you know, what people like, what they don't like, you know, what, you know, like, is, is this like a Knizia game where, you know, you can, you can kind of tell you're in the middle of it because no one has spoken for five minutes, you know, <laughs> or, you know, is it something more, you know, b- you know, bolsterous, boisterous, like, uh, you know, apples to apples or something like that. I mean, you know, the, the games lead to different uh, atmospheres, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's something I, I'm just often surprised. I, I do run into a lot of game designers who aren't really, you know, into board games. And that just it often really surprises me. Now, Paul, yep. you're one of the few people I know that's been on both sides of the fence, right? I mean, you've designed video games, you've designed, you've got, you've got a board game coming out, right? Right. Yeah. I started at Wizards of the Coast for five years and so I was doing tabletop card games and then, Uh, made the switch over to video games, um, which was something I'd always wanted to do, and then just recently have gone back to board games, um, sort of stepped away from video games for a little while, and uh, have a game coming out called Penny Arcade Gamers vs. Evil uh, with the Penny Arcade webcomic IP, and then uh, I'm working on three or four other designs that I'm sort of shopping around right now. But I would have to agree with everything that Soren said. Um, As a game designer, it feels almost more like pure game design in a sense, which is that that comes in a couple flavors. One is that you can prototype the mechanics in the game so quickly. You know, I can come up with an idea and a week later have a game that's ready to be played uh, around a table and people can get a really good sense for how the game is going to play even once it's produced. And also, as a, as a good video game designer, you have to sort of have your hand in a lot of pies. You have to be touching the art and the animation. You have to be giving input on all those things. And board games, you're very much focused on the mechanics. Like you said, the mechanics are really at the forefront. So I've been having a blast working on them. Do you feel like the skills are are directly transferable? Um, I think more than you might think. You know, I was definitely nervous going from tabletop trying to make that transition into video games, but and maybe it was just a function of the team that I found at at Maxis. They were really helpful, really welcoming, and sort of made that transition really smooth. There was definitely a lot of things to learn, but as far as the actual game design at the core, extremely transferable. You know, th- these games sort of use the same tenets and the same principles and working on one really informs the other in, in many cases i often think board game designers do a better job than we do like i really feel like they're ahead of the, the video games industry if you can compare them because um you know a board game you know you 
if you don't really em embrace like clarity of rules and simplicity and you know getting to the fun like you're going to have what's clearly a terrible a terrible terrible board game you know whereas <laughs> um video games i think can kind of use some sort of you know they can use sort of high production values and you know some other kind of sleight of hand things to you know kind of cover up you know a lack of you know actually interesting gameplay or interesting mechanics inside inside the product well, yes. I, I, now I want to toss this to Rob because I, I, I'm hearing you say, you know, simplicity of rules in game design as being some virtue of the board games. But Rob, uh, tell the audience <laughs> what you and I have been playing lately. <laughs> well, okay, so we've, we've been playing Advanced Squad Leader, uh, which is about about as far from that as you can get. And I mean, you know, honestly, I mean, you, you play Advanced Squad Leader and you learn very quickly why they don't make them like this, you know, anymore. Uh, be, because it's it's clearly this this effort, you know, it, it, ASL is, is such a is such a product of an era where, you know, the, wargamers want a certain type of game and wargame designers want to make a certain type of game, but it's just out of their reach. You know, they're trying to force you know cardboard shits to do the heavy lifting of simulating an entire you know battle. Uh, and, it, and it sort of seems like a design that's sort of waiting for the PC to, to realize a lot of what it's trying to do. And that's not to denigrate what it, what it does. Like, it's just, you know, an analog version of a game we played in better forms. It's really elegant the way that, well, as much as you can call anything an ASL elegant, I guess. Uh, but, it, but it's really elegant seeing how it tries to model all these, all these events on the battlefield and translate them into, into rules that uh, the players can apply. Yeah, I, I, I mean... I just I don't I don't think I don't think that's something that we should we should mourn at all for for sort of disappearing from the board game scene. Do you, Julian? Not not really. If anything, I, I guess I would take it from the other perspective. I mean, Soren, you're talking about simplicity in design, and I think about sort of the state of board gaming right now, if you will, like the, what, what's hot, what's selling. And I think about games like Seven Wonders, which is a drafting based card game, right. um, and, and it, you know many of the games that have come out over the last year or two, um, which I've enjoyed and I bought them and I play them, they do seem to have become quite simplified. And I sort of call this the Spiel de Jarring of strategy games in the board game world, where Spiel de Jar has essentially become a family award. And so the things that get the big highlight out of the Spiel de Jar award in Germany and thus get picked up immediately in the US for big print runs are actually more often quite simple, quite casual games by strategy gamer standards. Right. Uh, Seven Wonders. Did Seven Wonders win? It uh, won the Connoisseur Award. They added a new award this year called the Kenner Spiel. I guess it, it's the Connoisseur slash Enthusiast Award. Right, so I guess right. that's going to be going forward. They're going to that's going to be like the nerdier the award. That's right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> more hardcore. Right. I mean, well, so, I guess I, I guess the question is like, what games do you think are being? Do you, I mean, do you feel like there's certain games that are being ignored because they have more de depth or complexity? Uh, I, th as I think they games? just. I think they're harder to find, right? I mean, I think of some of my favorite strat. You know, what I would consider sort of real strategy games. Um, I mean, I I I don't consider sort of Magic a quote unquote real strategy game, even though it sucks billions of hours and dollars out of my life. I consider that sort of what it is over in the corner. That's a you know a deck building collectible card game in some variants, or it's a drafting game in other variants. But when I'm thinking about you know the traditional strategy game kind of thing, um, I think of things like War of the Ring. Um, more recently, maybe things like uh, uh, Agricola, and I, I, I'm, I sort of feel like fewer of those big deep strategy games are coming out on a, a year over year basis, and. At the same time, I feel like I read articles in the Wall Street Journal about, you know, guys on Wall Street playing Settlers of Catan. So I sort of feel like there's two dynamics where board gaming is becoming more mainstream and more popular, but the kind of games I like might be coming out a little bit less frequently, but I could just be getting to be an old crotchety man at this point. I read an article that uh, said that Settlers of Catan has almost replaced golf in Silicon Valley as sort of the business mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. game that you play, you know, to meet people, which I think is great. You know, I'd much rather meet a potential business partner over an intellectual game like Settlers of Catan than have to go out and learn golf, which is something I may or may not <laughs> really care about uh, just in order to sort of further my career, right? So I think yeah, that's I've amazing. Yeah, um, I've been really, I've been really shocked yeah, yeah. to see Catan at like uh, various friends' houses who really are not gamers in any specific way. I mean, it's essentially sitting on the shelf the same way Monopoly would, you know. And it's just like, wow. I mean, that's we've come a long way. 
Well, I remember that uh, you know my parents actually bought Catan. I, I don't think they ever actually played it. By the way, I think I think my father just heard you know oh there's the, there's this new game. It's like you know it, it, it's sort of like Monopoly, but it's a better game. He he viewed it very much in sort of a tradition of the old family board game, right? Except a better game, something that'd be worth playing and revisiting and maybe mastering. Right. And that's what that's what intrigued him about it. And I mean, you know, what he and my mother discovered is fundamentally they're not board gamers. I mean, that was. The shrink wrapped copies of Catan in their uh, board game closet underneath the linens. Uh, that that was that was proof enough that this just wasn't wasn't for them. Um, but you scored but, a but free I think copy of Catan out of it. <laughs> uh, no, then, then the damn house flooded. So oh, no, wow. still still don't have a copy of Catan. <laughs> but no, I, but I think that was. <laughs> but but I think that was. I I think that I think that at least sort of seems like. The uh, the Catan was sort of being was speaking to a need, and people were highlighting it for that. I, I think people understood there was a reason that they stopped breaking out their copies of Trivial Pursuit and Sorry and Monopoly. That you know these games just weren't being played that often. Everyone had them, but just just wasn't you know they weren't becoming the family gathering points that they were. And for some reason, I, and I don't know why, I'd be I'd be curious to curious to hear why you guys think that like Catan broke through. For some reason, Catan had won this reputation of being the family board game that was a good game. Well, it, it helps it's a very social game, right? Like, I mean, I, I, if people look at Monopoly, I mean, the one part of Monopoly that really does work is the whole um, property trading concept, right? Right, right? So I think that's that's sort of a natural relation. But in many ways, it was it was kind of the right game at the right time. Um, like, I don't, I don't know, like, what infrastructure was in place that kind of allowed it to spread, you know, maybe it had something to do with the web. I, I really, I really not, not sure what happened there, but, but clearly, like, I, you know, maybe it's not like if, if that game had just been teleported back 20 years, you know, in the past, something like that would have happened. Um, I mean, there were good, there were, you know, Sid Saxon, for instance, made some, some great games, you know, 20 years before, um, but they didn't, you know, kind of spread culturally the same way Settlers of Catan did. I, I think... Go ahead, not only not only is it uh, social, which I agree with, really helped it, but also it's really high variance. And I think that if you yes. look at a game like Monopoly, you know, huge variance in terms of when you're landing on hotels, what properties you're landing on. Basically, that fact that anybody can win, and you always have a scapegoat. You can blame the dice. You know, it wasn't your fault. Uh, something that it does really well for Magic too. You know, the land screw that every new TCG designer tries to take out and tries to fix. Turns out that actually really isn't a problem in the first place, but, you know, not for the reasons you might think. Uh, and I think that helped it a lot as well. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, Monopoly, I, I, maybe I'm in the minority here, but Monopoly is also just a really shitty game. I mean, it's not actually particularly skill-based. I mean, I've actually watched the the competitive a national monopoly tournament that they do on the train. I've actually watched the ESPN three coverage of that. And yes, at that level, there is, there's a skill to it. Kind of like there's definitely a skill when you're playing something like, uh, you know, poker, uh, where the skill is really knowing the game extremely well, understanding all of the odds, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if you're on this space and you get this role, this is precisely the optimal move. You know, there there is, at a very nerdy, deep level, there are guys that think about Monopoly in ways that would keep me up at night. Catan, on the other hand, I think has, it's simply a better design. It's more balanced. It's phenomenally easier to teach, right? I mean, I think until you have kids, you don't realize how horrible Monopoly is. You try teaching Monopoly to a seven-year-old, and, and the chances that they actually play the game correctly are infinitesimally small. But my kids have been playing Catan since they were seven, and I don't think they've ever gotten a rule wrong. Yeah, I mean, Monopoly at this point, it's just, it's just sort of a historical artifact, something that we're, we're stuck with. Um, and maybe we're finally moving past that now, that because there is, I mean, that's the thing. Like, if I, I look at board gaming, like, I see that there is an actual sort of historical arc here. Like, we're really in, you know, either a renaissance or a golden age of board and card games right right now, you know. And I don't, right. I don't necessarily see that with video games. I, I feel like with video games, we're still fighting with the technology. You know, we're still kind of like, making progress and then falling back and making progress and then falling back. Right. It's not like the whole, you know, I mean, nowadays, you know, you look back at stuff like Monopoly, you look back at kind of, you know, those like monster war games of like the seventies and eighties. Um, 
and don't want to denigrate ASL, but you know stuff like that. And and you look back and you basically think, you know, what were we thinking, right? Like, <laughs> like, like that's that's the past, and it's kind of interesting to look at. But like, we're really going to put that stuff away, you know. Like we we figured out a better way to do things, and you know, I'm, I'm just not, you know, until really like maybe we. I don't know if we'll ever hit the end of technology, but like, yeah, I just don't think video games are there right now. And, and um, board game is just a great place to be because of that, I think, maturity it has. Now, do you think that, you know, that Catan's popularity is going to lead to anything great, like, is going to lead to a change in people in, in the mass market's relationship with board gaming? Uh, I mean, should we even care about that? I mean, we, certainly, when we're talking about strategy games on this show a lot, we're often concerned with: is it going to, you know, bring pe- new people into the hobby? Is it going to get people interested in what we're up to? Uh, you know, is Catan filling that role, or is it, or is it not, oh, or is God. it not a day? It, it has to, right? I mean, because anytime you're teaching somebody to play a new game, and I often play that role in board game night. I mean, I often tend to be the locus that gets people to show up and play a game. So that puts me often in the position of curating the games that are coming out for the evening and teaching them to people who may not have played them. And and having you know, when you're teaching a game having a vocabulary that you can relate the game to is incredibly important right so if i'm teaching if i'm teaching a trick taking trick taking game to a bunch of old women who play bridge every week i have a great set of vocabulary to describe you know oh hell or whatever the new trick taking game is when i have a group of people that i know for instance have played settlers of catan i have all this great vocabulary about resource management about placement about territory um, you know, about trading that I can just immediately bolt right on. So yeah, I think, I think anytime you get a game, whatever that game is that gets tremendous sort of broad acceptance and you can sort of get a bunch of people at a table who are maybe not big gamers, but they've all played a game or two of Catan. I think that's huge. I think we're, I think really the big question is not necessarily like how popular Catan is, but how popular kind of like the, the next tier of games are, you know, your Carcassonne, your Ticket to Ride, uh, maybe right. even something like Seven Wonders or Steam, or you know, are are these games starting to to pop through? So you know, you know, is Settlers of Catan kind of this like one hit wonder that's going to be kind of this aberration, or is it going to you know revolutionize like when you go to a store what stuff you can buy? Although you know, we also have to. I think you really have to bring in the conversation what happened with Risk, right? Like. Uh, Risk was one of those games that was basically uselessly taking up a space, you know, on the on the um, game rack at at Walmart, right? You know, it was just one of these old games that was preventing people from playing better games. But now Risk is a good game, right? Like it's it has changed, um, and you know we could that, that there is another way to sort of transform the games that people are playing. You mean like the new version of Risk that was put out? Yeah, is a good yeah, the new Risk version Legacy. is. Right. Is, right. Well, no, no, not Risk Legacy. Just the I mean, I haven't I haven't had a chance to play it yet. That's too new. I just mean simply the new the new the new series of rules with the objectives. Right, um, right, and and I the mean, billion variations they've made along the way. Sure. Have you guys yeah. heard about the newest version, which sort of made waves on Board Game Geek? Yeah. So we're we're gonna have Rob Davio on later. He's sort of a friend of the show. Um, yep. And so uh, yeah, we will definitely we will definitely be talking a lot about that. What was your? What, I mean, for listeners who haven't heard, this is a version of Risk that you literally alter the board with every game, break out the sharpie, put stickers on the board, um, and and it basically creates a game that evolves over time. What's your thinking on it? Oh, I think it's great. I mean, I think that anytime people are sort of expanding the genre of board games and sort of exploring new space, um, you know, one game that I just played was called Jab Real-Time Boxing. And that's sort of taking that real-time aspect almost from computer games and bringing it into the board game space. And it's not new. You know, there's a game called Falling that was done before, and maybe there was another one that was about fighting. But... um, I just I love when people do that. Sometimes it's a little clunky, but I think actually Jab was a great implementation, and I can't wait to see what Risk does, um, just to sort of explore that space. Yeah, I have to admit I didn't I didn't if, I didn't think that um, it's not very often that I, I read of a new design. And I'm immediately like just like whoa, you know, the, like I'm not sure what I think of this, and that's that's you know I definitely got that reaction. When I read about Risk Legacy. I mean, I absolutely wanted to play it and see it, but. You know, yeah, it's true, especially pretty, with board games. It's pretty, it's pretty rare. Pretty bold. That yeah, right. it's pretty bold innovation, you know? Right, well, I mean, yeah. it's a little bit like, I mean, I remember back in, in the early days of Magic, you know, when I started playing Magic, I played for Ante, right? I mean, that was the original rule set, right? You Every time you mm-hmm. sat down to play a game of Magic, according to the original rules, 
you were betting on a card and you might flip over the very best card in your deck. And it was actually part of the game mechanic as a, as a deck builder that you didn't necessarily want to put your very best cards in the deck you were taking down to play that night because you were playing for keeps. Right. And that, that rule disappeared pretty fast. Once, uh, once, once card value started getting up over a dollar, um, you know, for the, the, you know, awesome broken rare cards that disappeared, but, but man, it totally changed the game when you were playing for keeps. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, and magic sort of changed, obviously like launched a whole new genre of collectible card games to sort of changed. I mean, that was a game that came in and just kind of, you know, blew my mind at the time I was pretty young, but you know, this was just opened up all these new possibilities. And then I feel like Dominion did that again. You know, I was sort mm-hmm. of, before Dominion came out, I was thinking like, I wonder what the next thing is going to be. You know, what is someone going to come out with that is just going to sort of change my worldview or make me think of a new sort of genre. And as you can see, now that Dominion is out, there's probably 50 games in that genre already of, right. that are trying to take advantage of that. And uh, I don't know if this is the next one. You know, it's, it seems a little, the risk thing seems a little too narrow to maybe spawn something. But, you know, if it works out really well, who knows? We could be seeing 10 or 20 of those games that sort of explore that yeah, evolution I, space. I, I, think, I think board gamers are naturally a little too anal retentive about their board game <laughs> collections. I mean, I think, Probably true. I, think, I think Legacy will do well because I think it's brilliantly designed. And um, I have had the opportunity to play a bunch of it. Um, and, and I think people will be drawn to it. But I don't think you're going to see a raft of... Uh, which what are we what, what, what are we going to call them permanent games in in the market? I mean, I think it's I think there's a whole, I think there's a niche for it, um, but but I think it's a narrow one. It's, it's interesting you bring up sort of Magic and then Dominion coming out. I mean, these are games that sort of invent or treat core uh, a, really almost a single core mechanic in a new way. And that really catches on and catches everybody by storm. I mean, we had a sort of recent resurgence maybe two or three years ago in cooperative games that was like that with Pandemic. And then we had a whole pile of cooperative games piled right on top of that, some of which were great, some of which were not so great. I mean, is do, do you feel like the industry is constantly chasing like whatever the new mechanic is? And is that a particularly healthy way to go? I think there's some of that. Um, I think that that's going to happen potentially with Seven Wonders as well. I mean, I think that's sort of at least in my circles, it's sort of caught everybody's imagination. Um, and, you know, I, Soren can attest to this. I was actually working on a, a drafting game a few oh, months yeah. before that. And it was, <laughs> you were, it was you were really a little crestfallen bad. after you pre- played seven yeah. years, right? <laughs> well, you wrote <laughs> a great article about that on your blog. Yeah, that was that was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, it was just about three months before Seven Wonders coming out. I was thinking, you know, what is the next big thing? What should I work on? And I was just thinking about drafting, and drafting is so amazing for Magic. You know, I could go on and on about how good drafting is as a game mechanic and how well it feeds into Magic and how it's basically the only way I play Magic anymore. And I think I'll be playing that way till I die, honestly. Like, if Magic keeps going, I'll still be playing. I'll still be drafting Magic, you know, 40 years from now. Um, and, I, and there was a game called Fairy Tale from Satoshi Nakamura, who uh, was a pro player in Magic, and he made a game just based around drafting. It was good, not great, but it just made me think, like, there's got to be something here. And so, yeah, I made up this prototype, and, and it was kind of humbling, actually, how much how quickly I realized I didn't understand drafting at all because it was all in the context of magic. And once you removed magic from it, you know, it was a whole new animal and you had to really think about what really makes this tick. And then Seven Wonders came out and just revolutionized my, right. my thinking about it because yeah. the game was really great. And, and, and magic can... was clearly not designed for drafting, right? I mean, it just happened right. that, that the format ended up being great. Right. Yeah. I mean, these these games like Dominion and Seven Wonders are really important because they're just sort of these breakthrough moments where... Um, I mean, you can see that uh, it's easy to see now how a good game could be built around drafting. But if you spent too much time drafting magic, you know, it was just hard to get past that concept of like you do your drafting and then you do your playing, right? I mean, that's the brilliance of Seven Wonders is it it staggers that, right? Which which not only probably is just generally better gameplay, um, but it's so much easier to teach a player. Right, like the big problems with a magic draft is like if I don't really know much about magic, how am I going to draft forty? Was it forty-five cards? 45, yeah, yeah. yeah or, I mean, that's just that's just crazy. Or, or, or um, much less if you don't know that set. If you don't know the, I mean, even if you know magic particularly well, because I'm one of these people that dips in and out of magic every couple cycles, and I'll get really into it for maybe you know a set of you know five or six expansions, two cycles, and then I'll maybe fall off the wagon for a year, and then I'll come back. And boy, if you haven't been paying attention, you can't just sit down and draft. You got to like go do homework. It's like doing an, it's still like doing a football draft. You have to go do all your research before you sit down to draft your team. Yeah, and so you know it was just this this wonderful leap that I think was 
very hard for people to do who are used to the old style. And I also think it's really interesting that, I mean, it's pretty clear Dominion and Seven Wonders are, you know, two of the most important games the last three or four years, but they're both games that are kind of like echoes of magic. They're yeah. kind of like ma- magic for the rest of us. Um, because I've played all of like two games of magic in my life, right? Because I'm just, I'm just not ready to get on board the CCG train, but, um, but now I can, you know, I can appreciate some of the interest, some, some of the gameplay that has been explored in magic in a different way. Right. 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 I mean, it's super daunting to get into magic, you know, at this point or just at any point in time, right. You have to learn years and years of cards that you might have to interact with, but Seven Wonders, you know, also just brings down that set to a very, you know, 100 cards or whatever, that that's all you need to know. And in fact, in the six and seven player games, most of them are duplicates. There's probably two of each. So really only 50 or 60 cards, right. um, which which does kind of lead into talking about expanding Seven Wonders, which I know you want to talk about, Julian. The the leader's expansion, I thought he did a great job with, Antoine Bauza, um, because Seven Wonders has this sort of unique quality where it's actually really hard to expand. And what, the reason I say that is because a lot of the cards are upgrade paths of one another and there's resources and if certain resources aren't in the game then the game just doesn't work so you can't randomly choose a bunch of cards and then only draft those right. like you do in magic or in dominions right i mean that's the shtick in dominions is you know you're always looking at 10 stacks of cards but they could theoretically be 10 of any of the however many hundred there must be at this point cards that you could be pulling from i mean it's not drafting it's just deck building um, but but it, it has a very different mechanic going on. You know, drafting has to be fairly tightly controlled to work, right? There has right. to be there has to be sort of an order of rarity. There has to be um, there have to be you know utility pretty much in every choice. There has to be the ability for a card that's good for me to not be good for you, right? They, they, the decisions can't just always be pick the best card because then it's not interesting, right? Yeah, and I, I, I do think that there will be a game soon that is seven wonders but with randomness like seven wonders meets dominion almost and it won't um it obviously won't have any of those upgrade paths and it won't have a resource system quite like that but i do think that someone's going to make that game i'm working on a drafting game of my own that's these days that's now uh about drafting tiles almost like carcassonne shaped tiles and you build a city out of them and my game is not that game, unfortunately, because I have those resources. And, and so, <laughs> you know, it's a pretty complicated resource system, actually, although it's, it's binary. Right. There's a bunch of different resources, but you either have them or you don't. Um, and so I can't do the random thing, even though I want well, that, to. That's, know, kind of what is, to be there. that's kind of what so, Ascension did to Dominion, right? Like, mm-hmm. it kind of cracked it open. Like, okay, instead of just these 10 decks or whatever, you know, you have, you have this whole stack, and you're not sure what, what you're going to get in what order. Um, right. Which I, I actually I, like Ascension less than Dominion for that reason, because Ascension, from game to game, it's very similar, surprisingly sure. so, because That's you see three-quarters right. of the deck every time, whereas Game of Magic or Game of Dominion, obviously, completely different, and right. drafting completely different every time. Right. I mean, and this is always one of the challenges, is you want variety, but at the same time, there's economics, right? You can't make a... And, and this is actually one of my beasts with Dominion, as much as I like it, um, is, you know, it, the game has been so expanded at this point that there are just, uh, you know, sort of... an an infinite combination of decks that you could have. Now, while that's awesome because I like variety, on the other hand, it means you can end up with some really whacked out, you know, variations and you end up with sort of conflicting rule sets and weird power creep problems. So it's, in my mind, it sort of started to introduce all of the things people complain about magic into what was a nice little controlled environment. In Dominion, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Dominion... Dominion real is really built to be expanded. I mean, that's that's you you you, you knew as soon as you played Dominion that like wow they're really going to like <laughs> there's going to be yeah, a lot of expansions of to this game, um, and I think it's in- very interesting how games go with expansions. Like I, I also was super impressed by the leaders expansion to Seven Wonders, especially since in general I hate expansions. Like I feel like most there's very very few games that are actually improved by an expansion. Like Dominion is kind of a special case because you literally like you can literally like throw You're away buying the a whole old new game. game. You're yeah, buying yeah. a whole new game. Yeah. So I, I'm a little more on, on board with that. But generally, it's, generally I feel like you know. You're always fighting this tension between like putting too much stuff in the game and trying and trying to take enough stuff out, so it's this nice sweet spot. And like when you go for an expansion, it's, it's usually it's like, well, okay, let's take the brakes off, and now let's you know let's <laughs> ruin the game basically. Yeah. Um, 
and, I think the uh, writers get trapped by this feeling that like the only people who are going to buy this expansion are the really hardcore players, right. and the hardcore exactly. players are the most vocal ones, and they ask for more comp complexity and just more mechanics. And when you give in to them, you sort of end up just ruining it for everyone, right. <laughs> and, then, right. and you're just not going to sell you know as much of your expansion as you can. But I, I thought that yeah, Antoine again, his the leaders expansion just added so little it was so refined yeah exactly um, but yeah. at the same it, time change the whole game it's it's yeah. satisfying for how little it does almost right i mean right. it was it's so easy to explain to somebody it was, what it does yeah it was really brave i would say like it's interesting contrast i mean like uh to me seven wonders equally has its foot in magic drafting as it does in race for the galaxy like i see a lot of race in seven wonders and that's a game that that's kind of been going downhill from too many expansions. Yes. You know? yes so it's, sure. it's been an interesting contrast. A perfect you know? case study almost of yeah. how expansions can sort of go <laughs> go yeah. crazy. Especially, like I, I, mean, I think I think he gave into the. I, I have to imagine with the military takeovers that he just gave into people complaining that there wasn't enough interaction. And you know, it's like need more interaction. Well, how can we do that? You can attack people, and how are you going to do that? You're going to steal their cards. And I still to this day have not played with a gaming group that actually uses those rules. Right, like, everybody right. just knows inherently that it's not worth it. Yeah, that's that's sort of the inevitable terrible idea. You know, it's like it's it's one that you know is going to come up, and you have to. Just, it's it's like the oh, we need to have tactical battles and Civ idea, right? Like we need to zoom into each battle you know it's like people keep stop talking about it till the end of time but that still means it, but it's still a terrible idea right <laughs> like yeah. it's never going to change it will never be a good idea so yeah and le leaders my first rule for expansions is that the expansion fits in the original game box i hate having to carry around two boxes oh, yeah. and leaders passes that perfectly you know it only adds a little stack of cards the other thing is it really adds so one of the greatest things about drafting for me is that there's sort of this aspirational thing where when you're you're playing with someone and they draft this exciting deck that maybe you hadn't even thought of. Now you want to play again because you want to try and get that deck. Or maybe you want to try and get a deck that you saw last week. In Magic, that's things like, you know, you draft the mono red deck. It happens once, you know, every year or something. But it's really exciting when it works. Or the perfect Merfolk deck. Um, and Leaders adds a bunch of different strategies to Seven Wonders that weren't viable before. Right. before like the gold strategy. Or I've played a game where I had no resources at all. I just bought resources off my neighbors using some of the new leaders. Or Play-Doh right. with like getting one of each color of card. Yeah. And even yeah. better is it adds a little bit of hidden information where you get to yep. reveal slowly over time, which Seven Wonders actually didn't have at all up until this point, where you sort of have something that you know that everybody else doesn't about where your strategy is going. Yeah, really like... Um... What's what's the right what's the best way to put this? Um, like the, the one issue I saw with Seven Wonders, but it was after a while, it's, it's going to get a little monotonous, right? And and the leaders just completely fixed that problem because now every time when you begin a game, you know you you can actually you're actually picking some sort of strategy at the beginning you can pursue, and it's always going to be a little different, right? right? As as compared to the variety of your first hand of of age one cards, you know, are, are generally speaking, not going to have that much variety, not nearly as much as compared to your leaders. So, right. yeah. And you have your wonder, but even that, I mean, you've, once you've played a right. wonder a couple of times, you know, you sort of get, okay, this is the sort of direction this is pushing me and it's not going to change that much. Yep. So, so Rob, one question I had for you, I mean, you're relatively, you're a bit more of a neophyte in the board gaming world. I think it's, a, it's more, you started more in video games and have come more into the board games recently, at least. I mean, what are you looking for when you come to board games that you're not getting in the video game world? Well, I mean, the the thing, uh, the first answer is always is always simplicity. I think, um, you know, if you if you play a lot of PC strategy games, it it increasingly becomes these really uh, long form endurance tests. We talked about this, I think, the other week with Bruce a bit uh, that. You know, you st you start a game, you can't see the end. By the time you reach the end, you can't see the beginning. And I think uh, a bit of what you were talking about there, Paul, that that aspirational play, where you're you're playing with someone and you see them pull off a neat trick. And this happens so often in board games, even ones I know really well, like Agricola, still surprises me. When somebody does something that I just didn't think would work, you know, it's it's a strategy I never really considered, a you know, a line of play that hadn't really presented itself, and. You know, it's like it's like they just pulled a rabbit out of the hat. Um, oh, that's a terrible play on your handle, Julian. I'm sorry. All right, it's all right. Um, <laughs> so, but that, but that's something that that's something that that video games really that really that they really don't offer. I, I think that there's a, there's a lot of video games where, for all the complexity of their systems, uh, 
it it does feel like actually there's there's a fairly simple trick I have to master, and all this complexity just kind of serves to obscure the trick, right? Like I've got to wade through the, these reams of information, but once I figure out what the game is really steering me towards, I, I can pretty much run the same thing again and again, and it's never going to change. Board games, I, I think the re- the really good ones, uh, maybe this is true of any good strategy game, but board games it's most noticeable because that's when I see other people sort of expressing uh, different styles of play. You, you know, it's not just simplicity. It's transparency and clarity, right? That's important in board games because you see when someone's doing well, you see exactly how they're doing it, right? And you know you see what steps they're going through. Where there's always this problem, like like with an RTS game, for example, like you know, Fog of War is great, right? I mean, it's one really wonderful concept. You know, allows us all you know all sorts of great gameplay from that. But it has this terrible problem in that. You know, a lot of people will play an RTS, you know, they'll do this stuff for 15 minutes, and then suddenly they'll get wiped out, and they really have absolutely no idea why, and they may not have the motivation to actually watch a replay or, or something, right? But you don't have to play a board game too many times to kind of pick up on, you know, what your opponent is doing, and then that leads to a whole other level of the gaming, because then you respond to how he's playing, so he's going to start responding to how you play. Um, and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of computer games, it's just, that stuff is just basically invisible, yeah, and I, I get frustrated by that so much. And I mean, whether it's something is, I mean, to, to, you know, is it, I can't remember which one's Dominion and which one's Dominion's 3. Uh, but I think it's Dominion's 3, you know, that incredibly complicated strategy game um, that Bruce wrote the manual for. Right? I mean, part of what's so frustrating about a game that's that broad is you never have any idea what's actually going on under the surface. I mean, you never really understand that you lost this battle because this guy didn't have enough armor. Yeah, I feel like that computer games, I don't know what it, I was trying to think about this earlier today, and I think computer games, for whatever reason, um, there's never really like certain decisions that I can point to where I'm really agonizing over it, and I know the sort of consequences of both paths, and it's just like a really fun but hard decision to make. And I, I think part of that is because, you know, they often are real time. Part of that is because they're often just so complicated and have so many decisions that you make over the course of the game that no one decision is going to be that important and some of it is because you know like rob said you get there's a little bit solved or you know what you're going to do but having played uh kingdoms on strategy station i don't know how much you guys have talked about that but it's a sort of board game um digital board game by soren uh online that game just i don't know what it is but when i'm playing that game i'm agonizing over every last thing i know exactly what's going to happen you know if i do one or the other and i just i love it but it's so hard to figure out what i'm going to do and i just sit there and stare at the screen for 15 minutes and i'm just like oh you know if i do this and he does this it's going to kill me and and i, I could just understand the systems at such a core level that it makes it really intense and fun for me but, and but i just don't get that at a lot of computer games but that's a but that's i mean i i would argue with no disrespect or in that that's not a computer game that's a board game that you've designed right happens to no be that's, designed that's my point actually right sorry yeah. is that that this is a board game thing a board game experience and kingdoms is just the example as a board right. game right well, um, well, that, as that, i get these get this feeling out of board games right well this raises this really interesting gray area right because lately i've been playing like it seems like half of the, the games i play in my computer now nowadays are essentially all board game trans border card game translations on the computer which kind of often, which to me hits this like wonderful sweet spot of because they had to design a physical version of the game, they couldn't go crazy with the rules. They had to make sure all the mechanics were simple and transparent. But then once they put it on, you know, the, the iPad or on the web or, you know, made it executable, you know, they got, they, they took care of all the record keeping for you and gave you this nice quick, you know, interface. So you, you can play a game that has the depth of like 1960 in less than an hour. You know that's that's an incredible experience, and well, you can you can actually play 1960 in less than an hour if you're playing the version online. Well, that's that's <laughs> well, that's exactly what I mean. Oh, I'm yeah, saying that yeah. that yeah, I mean, if I played 1960 in person, you know, I mean, it's going to take a few hours. Yeah. Um, and half that time is not really that fun. It's just moving you know, moving a lot of cubes around, um, and uh, so uh, you know. 1960, they didn't they didn't make that game so you could play it online, but clearly there's this even better game that exists now because you can play it online. Right. And it's kind of weird because it's like, well, why don't we make computer games like that in the first place? Right? Like, why is that not a computer game? (laughs) It's like we're constantly shooting ourselves in the foot because we have all this capability that we can use that ends up ruining and swamping our own own games. So I'd be curious then... 
how does that happen? I mean, you, you know, you, you've been in the design process, you know, an absolute ton. Uh, so, what's the mechanism by w- by which that happens? I mean, you, you certainly a lot of a lot of computer game designers play a lot of board games. They 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 value what the, what these games present, a- and yet in PC strategy games, a lot of times that that just doesn't come through. There's there's no discernible influence. Uh, well, I say that's that's the that's largely almost I say a, biz- a business issue at this point. Um, you know, you're making games that you want to sell for fifty dollars. Um, that means pre- presentation is going to be a very big deal, right? Um, and when you have that much presentation, it's oftentimes hard to be very um, transparent and clear about what the actual rules are that, that are going on underneath. Um, and especially because a lot of those games tend to be real time, right? Um, like Civ's probably one of the few examples of a game where the rules are still fairly clear and it can have really nice presentation. Um, you know, there's really only a few games that I say, you know, think still, you know, rise to that level. Um, so I think, it, I think it, to some sense, it's a, it's a bravery issue. I think, I think it would be very hard for, um, you know, a game company to um, be brave enough to to release a game that has as few mechanics as a typical board game does, and sell for fifty bucks. And it well, may be impo- it may be impossible to do that. There there maybe it's the wrong market. They should be selling. It's like the the small game show we had a, a few weeks ago. You know they should be making these games, but sell them for ten bucks on Steam. You know. Right, and and that's where I was going to say that to me is where the sweet spot really has been. I mean, games that aren't necessarily board games. We had we had. Um, Oh, I can't. I'm blanking on the name. Six Gun Saga. Uh, oh, yes, Vic Davis. Vic Davis. Sorry. Um, so you know, we had Vic Davis on a few months ago talking about Six Gun Saga, which is designed as essentially a card game. I mean, that's that's the mechanic. You're drawing cards out of a deck, et cetera, and so on. But you couldn't actually play it at the table because there's this hidden information system, right? So he's he's kind of bridged that gap a little. Now, I mean, we're talking about the niche of the niche. Um, but, but that's a game that could exist, say on the iPhone, or the iPad quite easily. Um, and, and certainly people would pay 10 bucks for that on all sorts of platforms if they knew it existed. I hope people do find it outside the people who listen to our show. Um, but you look at something like Ascension on the iPhone or the iPad, which is definitely a, I mean, it's, it's a card game, right? That's how I learned it. Um, and, and I agree, it's not brilliant. I think it's a, it's a, it's a competent, enjoyable deck building game that has a couple little twi- twi- twists on things, but it happens to be implemented really well on the iPhone and iPad. And I know tons of people who are playing the crap out of it as like a core, you know, a few minutes a day kind of experience. And I, I, I really feel like the mobile platforms are where we're starting to see either literally direct translations of board games like Catan and Small World and Puerto Rico, or these kind of bridge games that you couldn't necessarily do in the physical world, but boy, are they close. Right. I'm glad you brought up uh, Vic Davis because he he probably doesn't feel like it because he probably feels like he's on, you know, sort of the outskirts of the industry. But to me, he's, he's one of the people who's on the absolute forefront of uh, computer game design because he's making these games which use board game elements, but they do something that they do. They often do things that you couldn't do right with a physical game. And yet he hasn't left those roots. Right. They, right, the games still feel very tangible to you, um, and that's a really unexplored area because there's so much interesting stuff you can do if you if you limit yourself to doing stuff that that still feels like it has this like real physicality. Um, but uh, for for example, like in Kingdoms, the game that, that Paul was talking about, um, so there's there's an exploration phase, and that's how you get your new cards, your new cards, right? But if you're one of the people who chose that phase, you get a certain bonus which is that when you draw four cards, instead of getting four random cards, you can say, okay, I want four random units or I want four random buildings. Um, And the thing is, that's a very simple, easy thing to do for a a computer game, but that would be almost impossible to do for a physical game, right? Because you'd have to keep three separate decks of the cards, but then shuffle them together again every time you wanted to distribute them randomly, right? I mean, that would be a nightmare. But it's actually a very simple concept to explain to someone, and the only way to do that is in a video game. And I think there is um, there is just this huge unexplored area uh, for for you know making games that have that um, the restraint you know of a board game, but are able to like explore these new areas when you have this um, 
you know, impartial, neutral record keeper, you know, the computer going on, right? Right. Yeah, and the, there's a bunch of them on, well, there's a few of them on Xbox Live Arcade, too, and Xbox Live Indie Games. There's one that was really good on Indie Games. I can't remember the name of it. It has Wonders in the name, I feel like. But you're, you have ships that are moving around a board, and there was also Age of Booty, which is similar, and then Greedcore, I think, was one. Right. So there are right. those games coming out, and they're usually at the $10 price point. And I agree with Soren that like I'd love to see more of them. I'm glad Vic Davis is doing that. And I also agree with you, Julian, that you know the iPad is a great place to experience those games. You know, Ascension is an interesting example for me because it's a game that I almost never play in real life. I own it. I've played it maybe three times. Yeah, ditto. and I've played the Ascent the iPad app over a hundred at least, maybe <laughs> yeah, hundred fifty. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, crazy but but it's also true that i mean like soren was saying you know a game like 1960 which which actually doesn't involve a lot of record keeping but has a lot of fiddliness to it just moving all the crap around um yeah or or a game like puerto rico which has a lot of record keeping i mean you actually have to like constantly resetting stuff um or agricola right these are games that are actually kind of a pain in the ass to play in the real world because just of keeping all the stuff on the table um, small world is a good example small right. world god just get those freaking things out of the goddamn plastic box and, kill me. <laughs> and on the ipad it's 10 minutes or 15, right exactly you know, you know and, and you know i, I it, it makes me think of horde which we've talked about before which is it started as a psn title i think you can get it on steam now which is in a, a real-time sort of quasi strategy game where you're flying a little dragon around it's a two-stick shooter but it's really designed as a strategy game you know when i talked to those guys they said yeah this was a board game right up until we hired our full development team, right? We designed all the systems out. We did all of it turn-based. And then when we figured out all the balance issues, we just implemented it in the board game. And that's, it still remains one of my favorite sort of light three-player, uh, you know, sort of couch games out there. Another game that's sort of going that route is uh, Card Hunters. Have you guys seen that? Yeah, and that's got a pedigree too. I mean, that's got right. um, you know, it's, it's got uh, I'm going to forget everybody's names, but yep. it's John Che from uh, mm-hmm. who was you know part of Irrational Studios for a while, um, Irrational Games for a while. It's got um, Dorian Hart, Dorian who's Hart. part of uh, Irrational Games. It's got Kevin Culp working on Story, who you know is ex Watsy. I mean, it's it's got a you know quite and Richard Garfield's a consultant on the project. You know, the designer of Magic: The Gathering, and that's being designed you know, explicitly for digital delivery, but clearly started as a card game. Well, that actually, you know, we, we were talking about, you know, why, why isn't there a crossover? And as we've, as we've, as we've been talking about this, you know, it, it sort of seemed to me over these past few weeks that I'm seeing that there seems to be something of an indie exodus going on. Maybe it's been in, in progress for a while, but it certainly seems now that there's a lot more open discussion of why people are leaving uh, you know the, the mainstream mainstream industry, and you know starting up with these smaller projects, and I'm wondering, you know, is, is that where we're going to, you know, tying this in with our with our small games discussion, is that where we're going to start to see this crossover uh, between board games and computer games, where now developers have have the freedom, uh, you know, to pursue pursue that avenue of design, uh, to to maybe always you know try the hybrids of computer sensibilities and board game sensibilities that they've always kind of wanted to do. Uh, I mean, certainly when I look at a game like Risk Legacy, I kind of you know, and we'll have to ask Rob about this. Um, I, I it certainly looks like a game that is taking a bit from the way computer games use persistence. Uh, you know, and and the the you know, and the, the way they use context for for your actions that you know you are create you are creating this long campaign, you're creating a story. Uh, do you think that you know with, with outfits like you know Blue Man Shoe uh, starting up, we're start we're going to start seeing a lot more uh, strategy games at that you know ten dollar you know fifteen dollar price point, uh, combining lessons from both schools of design uh, from you know big name developers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think because we're sort of entering, you know, somewhat of a golden age of indie games where there's actually platforms that you can release them on and do really well now, especially Steam and also XPLA, although that's sort of trending downward, I think, a little bit, um, that people, yeah, just have this freedom to sort of make the games they want to make and charge what they want to charge for them. And of course, you can go straight to iOS. And um, I would be surprised if we don't see more of that and you know talking right now is making me think you know maybe i should take some of my board games that i'm working on and start thinking about putting them digital and then what would that mean for the design and it's a really interesting design challenge and i think the results could be really cool yeah i think you have to be i think you have to be crazy right now to not try to think of both things at once right like 
of course, if you're going to have a successful board game, you, you know, people are going to want to play a digital version of it. So, you know, and, and it strikes me that the the potential for reach is so much higher. I mean, I'm, you know, I know the guys at um uh, the at Plaid Hat Games that release Summoner Wars, which is a great, you know, sort of take on it's not it's not collectible because you're buying whole armies at a time, but it's sort of this simple card-based uh tactical combat game, I guess you would call it. Um it's a, it's a great fun light design, you can teach it in 5 minutes, play it in 20, right? And he's had great success with that. But great success in the board game world for an indie developer is selling, I don't know, 30, 40, 50,000 copies of a game. That's that's a big deal. And a lot of small games, a lot of things, you know, a lot of guys who have a booth at Gen Con and show up trying to, you know, put their self-published title out, if they sell out their first print run of 10,000, they're like ecstatic, right? That was huge success. Whereas if you're releasing a game on iOS, it seems like the potential to say, get 100,000 people downloading your game for a dollar is a lot higher. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the, I guess the question is, and I'd be interested to hear what Paul would say to this, is you know, if you're kind of make the assumption that your digital version is going to be as, as important as your physical version, how does that change your design? You know, what would you do differently, do you think? Right. That's, I mean, that's tricky. Um, one, one aside real quick is that I'm, I'm almost ashamed to admit this, but Summoner Wars is the one game that I'm not going to buy the paper version because I heard it's coming out on iOS. It and is. And it looks great. It looks, yeah. it, the guys who did the Ascension version that are doing the, the digital version. Oh, nice. Actually, yeah, my game, my board game, the Penny Arcade game is coming out from those guys as well. Uh, I don't know when, but so yeah, those guys are getting around. They, obviously everybody was super impressed by the Ascension app, so they're going to be swamped with business, I'm sure. But yeah, it's a good question. Like how, I mean, you're sort of faced with a quandary there. Like, do you, I mean, is the, it's probably not the case that the game design should be the same for both games. Like there's going to be changes that you could make to make the game better when you go to the digital version that just aren't going to be possible in the paper version. Is it okay to make those changes? And that's something not a lot of games that I know of have done where you actually ship with two different versions. It's something that's interesting to think about. It would be scary. Um, other I mean, than that, I, you're sort of forced to go the paper route, right? Right. Well, how, well, on the other hand, how important is the paper route, right? I mean, it's kind of weird. It's almost like it almost makes you think of like movies that release in theaters that they don't really expect people to go see, but they just do that <laughs> so that they're like a real movie, you know? Right, so they'll be right. eligible right. for the Oscars, and people will rent them a DVD and they'll get it on Netflix or whatever. <laughs> and I almost right. feel like we might be hitting this point with board or card games, or like, look, there's a physical version, but you know, everyone's just going to buy it on the well, iPad. So. I mean, I think there are examples of that. I mean, I, I mean, maybe, maybe I, I, I apologize to the designer of this game already if this is not the case, but um, there's a, a, a board slash iPad game called. Hiroshima Hex, which mm, sure. I think is, great is, game. it's a great game. I I've that. never seen a, I've never seen a physical version. So I've seen <laughs> exactly one physical copy in my life. I've never seen it on a shelf, but but uh, my, our, Rob's and my friend Corey Banks owns a physical copy, and I actually saw it on his game shelf like I don't know six months ago, and I was like, oh my god, there's a physical copy of that. Is that like some prototype from the designer? It's like <laughs> no, I, I bought it at Gen Con two years ago. So this is one of those games that I have a feeling got that limited print run from China of five thousand copies or something like that, and never reprinted. But I play the hell out of that thing on my iPad. I mean, the other thing to look at is the, the difference in price between the iPad version and the board game version, which sure. is why I said I was ashamed about Summoner Wars, because I feel bad. You know, if I buy the paper version, that's $30, $40, maybe 20 of which goes to the, you know, uh, developer. And I buy the iPad version, that's 2 or $3, right? Right. So it's, I mean, maybe that makes, it's all just a quantity of scale or whatever, you know, I don't know how much less the board games are selling versus their iPad. Well, parts, I, I, I know, I know for sure, just because I know a lot of folks on the, on the physical production side, you know, there's an awful lot of money that gets put into all those pieces of cardboard and all those little wooden cubes and all those little plastic molds and shipping all that crap from China. And uh, then you've got uh, okay. the distributor fee to Alliance. And I mean, yeah, the margins have to be but, terrible. For, yeah, at the end of the day, you're probably not making much more. Yeah, but it, but if you're if you're going into digital as well, though, I mean, what does that what does that physical version get you? Well, it probably gives you higher profile at the you know at the conventions where you know the buzz is going to start. It's, yeah, and I mean, because there's there's no there's no great. I mean, to my knowledge, there's there's no great like, you know, 
iOS board gaming convention. Like you don't go you you don't go to PAX and walk into you know the the game the game room and see everyone playing on playing on their iPad <laughs> on their iPad. Everyone's gathered right. around cardboard. They might not buy this stuff, but if you can hook them up with you know a two dollar five dollar ten dollar game online that they played in a physical space, uh, you know then that then that justifies the investment. You know it's you know it's the, it's the first hit is free. You know the people the the tastemakers who actually you know are crazy enough right. to go out and buy the vinyl and, and uh, you know cardboard um you know we'll we'll you know hook their friends up with it and the irony is the way that i play most of my board games online is through things like brett spielwell which is the big german gaming website um or and there's seven or eight other versions of those things where you can play these big complicated german board games for free and the publishers are fine with that because they figure everybody's going to go buy physical copies of the game. And what you're actually suggesting is a bit of the opposite, which is you make the physical game as the loss leader so that you can sell, (laughs) sell the digital one. Yeah. (laughs) I think there's truth to both of them. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of the guy who buys all the board games and then gets my group to play them. Right. And I think there is something to that word of mouth that there isn't a lot of, there isn't a great channel for word of mouth on the I, on iOS. You know, about the best you can do is go to the, your Game Center app and then look to see what games your friends have been playing. But I can't imagine too many people do that. Right. Whereas, obviously, board games are social and you're going to be spreading the word to those people who then may buy the iOS version because they played the, the board game version at your house. So, yeah, there's definitely, I think there is something to that kind of spread the word of your spread the word of the game by putting out that paper version and it, and it well, is kind of silly but i mean it is kind of silly to say but i still think it's true that like if you completely abandon the physical version you're just going to go down the same path every other computer game designer has done and you're going to make it too complex and you're going to have hidden mechanics and like it's just going to keep you honest to some extent yeah it's a good point i mean yeah it's 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 interesting it, it, it is surprisingly hard you know when you're working digitally to sort of rein yourself in and keep everything but but yeah a lot of those I mean, it's it's amazing to me how compelling those board games are, even though they were designed as board games when they're put onto those OS devices. They're just so refined and so simple and so kind of refreshing. And yeah, like you said, I don't know if you'd be able to do that if you were just just working for that goal. Well, and, and the one the one last thing that you know I would you know it, it's sort of an imponderable is is whether or not. You know how how many how many designers who can make really really great like board games for iOS or you know uh, for Steam uh, just maybe don't have the don't have the technical capacity to create and iterate on design unless they have some sort of physical you know product they can manipulate you know like if you're, if you're not a coder. Um, and, you, and you can't just you know whip up a prototype really quickly. Uh, I would imagine there's a tremendous amount of value of being being able to just crank out some you know cheap playing chits and just see how your design is progressing. And I wonder if there's a bit of you know selection bias, uh, you know, in, in computer gaming where you know the people the people who know who are really you know good good in this medium have also sort of. <laughs> not to sound so judgmental by, about it, but have also been a bit tainted by it. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of paper prototyping. I mean, even in the video game world, um, one of the things I did on Darkspore was was paper prototype the sort of core mechanic that was driving the metagame of the game. It's called the chain game. It was sort of a risk versus reward system. And I took the, um, I took a bunch of decks of playing cards and then just used a modified version of War. And the reason I chose War is just you want something that people can sort of latch onto immediately. It's really easy to explain. And if someone walks by, they can see people are flipping over cards and looking for the highest one. I get what's going on here. But then added on all these rules about how you could sort of, we were testing free-to-play mechanics at the time. So we were testing you know, the economy and how you could trade cards and how you could buy them and everything. And it was actually really successful and not only taught us a lot, but also got the team really excited about the mechanic um, to the point where people were still had their decks of cards on their desk a year and a half later when the game shipped, uh, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, paper prototypes can be really useful for video game development, but you have to like really commit to them. Like I've seen a lot uh, of things be tried out, but they, they kind of end up being the kind of these, you know, really just these sort of like you know, random side things that, that really feed very little back into the game. Like well, you have to really treat it like, like, okay, we're really making the game here. We're not just like fiddling around with something that's sort of thematically like the game. Well, but, but Soren, you, you sort of put this whole site up that, I mean, I guess probably a lot of our listeners have heard us talk about it over the last two years, but you know, you have your right. strategy station site where you have a handful of games that you've been right. sort of iterating on over the last couple of years. 
And, you know, they are fundamentally board games, but I mean, I'm sort of curious, have you actually, when you're working on like a new version of that or a new rules tweak for that or a balance, are you printing that out and playing it as a board game with your group or are you just diving right into the code? No, I'm just diving. Well, you know, um, Kingdoms started, I originally made a car, a civilization card game um, that was part of the Civ Chronicle series. Yeah. Um, and that... Um, Kingdoms is essentially like an evolved version of that. And it's kind of like once I was on the computer, uh, I was able to see some interesting ways to improve the design based off of what the computer gave me. So to me, I see Strategy Station as, as trying to do the type of stuff that Vic Davis is doing. And that it's like, this is these are games that, um, you know, I want to feel like board or card games to have that, that, uh, you know, that transparency, but, you know, they're, they're fully, they're also fully video games, you know, they're, they're, they're native to that, that, that language. Um, and I think it's just kind of a continuum. And I think the most, the most successful one kingdoms really feels like that. Whereas the least successful one, which is probably conquest, you know, is still, is, it suffers from that kind of uh there's stuff going on in the background i'm not really sure what it is there isn't there isn't the same amount of clarity um yeah i I think it's interesting that kingdoms is the most successful certainly you know for me and i think for the site as a whole um and i and because it it does come out of that roots of like we were saying like it comes from a board game and maybe there's just some magic to that of you can create these really compelling experiences that way and it's a lot harder to do it from scratch Yep. Well, I'll definitely be interested to have you both back here in a year after we've had a chance to see this trend, you know, continue, and 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 see where we're at, whether or not we're going to be entering the sort of uh, you know, the utopian future for strategy, uh, we've been constructing here, uh, uh, or, or whether we're still going to see a a bit of a a bit of an unfortunate division still between uh, electronic and cardboard uh, strategy gaming. Uh, but anyway, I want to thank you both so much for joining us tonight. Uh, it's been an interesting discussion. Um, definitely a topic that... Well, basically, it just really makes me wish I had an iPad, to be quite honest. I feel so completely <laughs> left out. <laughs> I recommend it. <laughs> yeah, I just I just got an iPad about a week ago, and I'm just kind of like... It's like kid in the candy store, you know? It's crazy. <laughs> required, I mean, it's, it's... required equipment for the strategy fanatic. Yeah, it's it's at this point. I mean, it's the I mean, an iPad is. I mean, it's an incredible device. There's so many incredible things you can do with it. But it's to me, it's the primary selling point at this point is that you know it's a way to play board games. It's all these great board games. Yeah, only eighty to ninety percent of my time on my iPad is spent playing board games. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. The the moment the uh, the moment the the touch surface coffee table becomes like standard equipment in every home, <laughs> uh, then the utopian future will be complete. All right, so that about does it for our show. Uh, again, thanks for joining us tonight, and uh, my thanks to our producer, Michael Hermes, for uh, cutting this together. And my thanks to you for listening. I uh, hope you'll join us next week for a discussion of an independent strategy game that's gotten some very mixed reviews, but which I rather liked, uh, Akron. Until then, good night.